Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Um, today is a little bit of a different episode. We are doing our 2023 predictions, and a bunch of my colleagues are going to come on and off the, the episode to tell me what they think. Um, we're starting off with Jocelyn Vaccaro. Jocelyn runs the Mobile Voting Project. She's been on this podcast before. Um, as listeners know, Jocelyn and I are trying to make it possible for people to vote in elections on their phones, and I talk about it, and Jocelyn does the hard work of actually building the technology and convincing election administrators to go along with us. So the year ahead, right, it feels like 2022 was yet another year that at least there was sort of an attack on democracy, but I think that the midterms at least provided some reassurance that maybe uh, the voters aren't quite as crazy or apathetic as we think. Um, with that said, if you are someone that is worried about the state of our democracy, what happens in 2023 in terms of litigation, in terms of election bills of states and everything else? Well, I think 2022, the one thing I'll say is the candidates who lost in 2022 largely accepted defeat, which really helped our democracy get stronger. It's, it's amazing that that's actually now we're, we're saying that as like it's a good thing, like that it would even be a question, you know? Right, right. So the fact that that happened in 2022 means that that now in December of 2022, I would say we are in a much stronger place than we were in, say, October of 2022. So just just by that simple fact and the fact that, um, you know, even with recounts and uh, a lot of slow counted paper ballots, that was still the case this year, um, I think really speaks well to the state of of our democracy and, and the recovery we were able to, to make after 2020. So looking ahead to 2023, I think that, you know, election officials are breathing a sigh of relief. I think hopefully, uh, my fingers are crossed, that, that we'll see fewer death threats against people who run elections. That'd be nice, yeah. <laughs> In 2023. Um, so that that's a, that's a mark one for democracy in 2023. I do think we're going to see a slate of election bills, however, as we do every January in an odd year, uh, it seems now. Um, I think there's going to be a lot more tinkering with absentee voting rules, um, a lot of tinkering with early voting rules, drop boxes, voter ID, um, open, I think one very big issue is gonna be open primaries. Um, I would predict there's gonna be some effort, particularly um, on the Republican side to close their primaries um, uh, as they prep for 2024. And, um, you know, I think we'll still see some other election reform efforts, expanding access to mail ballots, expanding access to early voting and and um, trying to make it easier for people to vote. But I think we'll see that in the usual places and then we'll see the opposite in, in the expected. Can, can I ask you what's maybe a controversial or radical question? Yeah. Which is there are going to be election bills uh, in blue states in some places to try to expand access a little bit, mm -hmm. in red states to try to restrict access a little bit. I would argue, and this is the thesis of at least how I see the work that we're doing together, is none of it really matters, right? It's mm -hmm. all super incremental. The reforms will increase turnout by 1% or 2%. The restrictions will decrease turnout by 1% or 2%. But the broken nature of our democracy, the fact that you know, 10% of people voting in primaries chooses mm -hmm. who runs our cities, our states, our country. It's not going to change. And until we have something like mobile voting, none of this stuff actually makes a difference. I mean, it's it's true that that expanding access affects turnout on the margins and restricting access does have an impact. And you can see it, especially with the, the populations of voters that those bills are tend to target. You know, they t tend to make it harder for some voters to vote. And, and those are the voters you do see bigger drop off with. So, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think something like mobile voting is, is not only going to help um, everyone vote, but it's going to really help those who right now have almost no option that works for them. Um, you know, for, for, for what, like the, the, the people who are non-voters, particularly because the system's set up to keep them from voting. So, Talk to me about mobile voting in 2023. What's our agenda and what are we hoping to get done? Well, we have a pretty exciting year in 23. We Our technology that 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 we've been funding the development of with grant money is, is almost done. It's in the final stage. We're starting security testing. We are um, 
um, running some integration tests and some user testing in the next quarter. And we are very hopeful that we will be able to make a big announcement about this technology being ready for a, a public vetting process and, and for election officials to assess and hopefully start implementing as early as next November. Right. So, so you and I both believe strongly that what we produce, hopefully sometime in the spring, will be public, that will be the most encrypted, most secure voting technology ever built, if nothing else, simply because it's the most recent one ever built, and we put $10 million to, into building, which is a lot of money for building um, one piece of election software. Yeah. Um, okay, so we build it, and we have kind of proven that it can be safe and works. We've, we've done pilots all over the country already and proven it to some extent. Um, what happens from there? You know, how do we take it in your view from, you know, we built the technologies. I don't think it's a field of dreams. If you build it, they will come because mm-hmm. every the they in this case is the political status quo who doesn't want to relinquish power in any way. And this threatens that. So once we prove that this tech is, is exists and it's safe, then what happens? I think we have to do two things. We have to we have to pass a whole bunch of bills to, to so that a whole lot more voters can use it. And I think there's a lot of people who, including some policymakers, who are interested in in, um, expanding it for specific populations. But then we're also going to have to really focus on building a movement and especially engaging young voters who, frankly, should be um, quite pissed off that they can't vote on their phones when they can do and live everything else in their lives on those devices. And I th- so I think that's going to be a, a big area of focus is really trying to generate a movement um, at the grassroots among uh, particularly young people. Yeah. I mean, I, and part of the reason that I kind of asked you what, what was a, a bit of a leading question was really more for the listeners even, which is, look, Jocelyn and I can put a lot of effort into this. I can put a lot of money into this. We can both get attacked publicly and suck it up, all of that. But at a certain point, it can't be Jocelyn, her team, and me, right? So if the people listen to this podcast, and I, I can't imagine you would be listening to this podcast if you didn't think mobile voting was a good idea, um, we need your help, right? Like, we can't save democracy on our own. We're just a couple of people, right? And we're not even, like, that powerful or rich on top of it. So um, if you're listening to this and you actually care about it, um, what you should be asking yourself is, how can I help? Because, yeah, uh, we can put the idea into existence, technology into existence, but if it is just our small team, it's it's not going to happen for a very long time. Jocelyn, you agree with that? A hundred percent. And and I would ask listeners to go to mobilevoting.org and, and visit our action center and, and sign up and find out how you can help us out. Cool. Um, all right. Final prediction, which is this is just pure, pure politics, but you've spent plenty of your career in electoral politics and, and government, too. Um, 2024, how do you see things shaking out? G- give me a prediction of what the presidential matchup will be. Oh, my gosh. Um, well, I, at this point, at this moment in time, in December of 23, I would say it's going to be Joe Biden on the Democratic side. I think we can safely say that at the moment. Um, and then on the Republican side, if it is two or three people running, including Donald Trump, then I think Trump is not the nominee, and it might—it's Ron DeSantis most likely at this moment. Um, if there's six, seven, eight, nine, ten candidates in the race, and they last, you know, beyond the first six contests, then I think Trump is the nominee again because he doesn't need to win a majority of, of primary voters. Yeah. And odds that, let's say Trump's not the nominee, odds that he either says that the nominee is illegitimate or that he mounts his own third-party campaign? Uh, very, very high. I, I mean, he would never accept defeat. So, yeah. That, that may be the best thing the Democrats have going for him. Yeah, for sure. Weirdly, the, the key to the White House in 24 might actually be Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, the uh, DeSantis versus Biden. I'm, I'm not sure Biden wins that one. The one thing I'll say, though, is I don't think Democrats would ever accept that because they, they lost in 16. So, you know, it's almost like PTSD. They they won't risk that loss again. <laughs> yeah. Un, un, under, under, <laughs> so, all right. Uh, people, you mentioned before, one more time, how do people learn more about mobile voting? Mobilevoting.org and visit our action center to get involved. Thank you. Cool. Thanks, Jocelyn. Have a great holiday. Thanks. You too. Thank you.
All right, welcome back to Firewall. We are continuing our prediction series. Uh, this is our New York politics piece. So Erica Tanner and Jake Sporn, um, I don't even know your titles because I don't particularly love titles, but they are two of the people that run our New York uh, political practice. They do incredible work. I admire uh, their views on politics, on media. Um, they are two of the people who helped run the Andrew Yang campaign, which was at least interesting. Uh, and so, guys, thanks for joining us. Of course. Thank you for having us. Cool. So, so 2023, um, let's start local. Uh, what do you think is the best opportunity for Eric Adams? And what do you think is the biggest pitfall? Erica, we'll start with you. Sure. You know, I've actually been really impressed in the last few weeks. You know, the biggest knock throughout the year on the Adams administration was that he wasn't rolling out really substantive policy, but we've seen a shift in that with big plans on affordable housing, on education, on mental health, public safety. And so I think we're really starting to see the administration flesh out their priorities. And I think we'll see more of that going into the new year. Jake? Uh, yeah, I, I agree with Erica. I actually think um, you know this next year, uh, Mayor Adams will, will likely hit a stride, I hope. Um, you know, the first year he spent in office, he had a, a partner and a governor that was uh, very new to the office, unelected to the office, um, and also running her own campaign to to win office. And as you well know, uh, the, the mayor needs a lot out of Albany. The mayor needs a lot out of the governor. They need a partnership. In, in the past, it's been a contentious partnership and some years outright uh, vitriolic. But, um, you know, New York City does best when the, when the mayor... Yeah, this, this relationship yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, New York City does best when the mayor and the governor are at the very least, uh, you know, amicable and uh, have similar views and, and visions. So I think um, all that's right. He's got some interesting things on housing. I will say, though, the, the one pitfall that he, he might face is uh, is crime. Um, he is right. I, I was about to ask you guys about that. That seems like that's still the number one. He issue. is. So can he get crime down? Uh, you know, I think. If you look at the numbers and you listen to the NYPD reports, um, crime is ticking down. It's it's gotten better. It doesn't feel like that. If you pick up the post any given day, there's there's all sorts of uh, uh, coverage on uh, on shootings and murders and homicides and rapes and all sorts of horrible things. Um, and this is a mayor that campaigned on getting crime down. So, um, you know, unfortunately, whether it's going down or not for, for Mayor Adams, it doesn't always feel like that. And then, of course, there's the big question of whether there's going to be a recession next year. Um, or, you know, some say we're already in one, some say we're heading towards one, but uh, economic trouble almost always leads to a spike in crime rate. Um, and, you know, it, it doesn't matter who's in office. You can look at Republican states, cities, Democrat state cities. Uh, when the economy goes down, crime goes up. So that's going to be a real challenge. Yeah, there was a, right before we started recording, I uh, saw a news flash that Goldman Sachs is laying off 4,000 people. Yeah. So, um, and those are people who, they're probably not all New York City residents, but they make a good living. They pay taxes. They probably don't consume that many city services. Um, so when those taxpayers aren't able to be part of the solution, it really makes it that much harder, which I think then leads to, Erica, you mentioned this already, the mayor's plan to start um, involuntary confinement, right? So there are a lot of mentally ill people on the streets. Uh, there's been a lot of violence around that. It has created both an actual, uh, you know, actual crime, but also just a sense of fear that that the tabloids have really seized on, and getting people off the streets is, the, to my view, the right answer. But not easy to implement, ranging from what's legal to what the NYPD can do and everything else. Um, Erica, how do you think this will go? Yeah, I mean, look, he's being responsive to what New Yorkers feel, like just viscerally taking the subway. I see cops everywhere. And that's definitely what New Yorkers want to see. They feel unsafe. The mayor understands that. He campaigned on this very issue, really hard to stake your entire campaign on public safety when a lot of it is actually out of your control. Um, you know, the progressives got upset with the involuntary commitment and his announcement on um, 
reaching out to people in the subway system who are facing mental health issues. But by and large, I think New Yorkers are with him on this issue and want to see that happen. Where I will say there is somewhat of a confusion is what the general public is expected to do in these situations. Like, are we supposed to call 911, 311? Is that the appropriate venue? So I would like to see a little bit more guidance. I know there's been some talk about maybe developing a new hotline to call if you're seeing somebody in distress. But a little, I think he's doing the right thing. So uh, a couple of months ago, there was a homeless person outside of our, our building um, and was just shouting all kinds of things. It was early in the morning. And I call, I wasn't an emergency, so I didn't call 911. I called 311, and they had no system whatsoever to deal with, right? right? And like, you know, they, they, they gave me some tracking number. I never heard, heard anything ever again. So, um, so yeah, I, I think that's right. They've, that, that they've got to, um, they've got to deal with this. Both of you worked in the city council and it feels like there's been a very quiet city council so far. Um, you know, usually the city council speaker, because she or he wants to be mayor, um, does a lot publicly, Corey Johnson, Chris Quinn. Um, and we're not seeing I think all that much out of Adrian Adams. Why is that, Jake? What do you think? Uh, you know, it's it, it's tough to say. Obviously, this uh, this speaker, uh, Adrian Adams of Queens, um, was uh, elected uh, speaker at the same time, coinciding with Mayor Adams's uh, the beginning of his term. Um, and if you, if you look back, even at the the beginning of De Blasio's term, you know the the. the we have a very mayor strong system here in the city. The mayor dictates a lot of the terms of everything. The mayor sets the budget and the council kind of gets to, to edit it a bit. Um, I think actually you, you saw a little bit of what the dynamic looked like this past budget. Um, the mayor implemented uh, broad ranging cuts across the city, but particularly to education, um, which the council passed. And then almost immediately, once the advocates um, blew up, I'll say, because uh, they really did. Um, the council had to walk back and say, no, 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 wait, we, we shouldn't have approved those cuts. Um, so it, it's tough to say it does feel like a weaker council than, than in years past. Um, they are doing some interesting things. Um, you know, they, they are working on uh, just this week, they passed a raft of legislation that'll electrify the city's vehicle fleet over the next 10 years. You know, that's an important issue for a number of environmental reasons, mm -hmm. quality of life reasons, um, it'll save the city money over time. Um, but yeah, we haven't really seen anything, uh, anything to the breadth of, um, you know, what past councils have done, passing things like right to council um, and things like that. Is that so, Erica, you know, I would say that the three of us are all New York City moderates, which probably still means radically far left for the rest of the country. Um, but there's a whole world that the DSA was looking to take over the city council, make Tiffany Caban speaker and really radicalize things. That's not happening. Should we just look at that as sort of victory in the city council, which is the lack of crazy left wing legislation moving forward? I mean, how do you judge Erica? Yeah, I mean, again, I think just like with the mayoral administration, we are going to see the city council start hitting its stride. And in particular, I think this will be an anti-NIMBY city council, which is so great. To your point, Bradley, the progressives that we thought were coming into the council and would stop some of the development and more moderate approaches to governing haven't done that. In fact, Tiffany Caban passed a pretty significant rezoning in her district. Um, we're seeing other rezonings. Just yesterday, Adrian Adams put out a plan asking for every neighborhood to commit to a certain number of units being developed. So I think we're going to start seeing a little bit more movement in the council. And it's been a slow start, but I feel like it's trending in the right direction. Sarah, you're, you're a policy expert in lots of different areas. Uh, is the notion that if you want more affordable housing, you can't then also insist on all of this community review, environmental review, restrictions, landmarking, you know, things that the left sort of gravitates towards nat naturally, but they're really the impediment towards the other thing that's really important, much more important, which is affordable housing. Yeah. Does, does what you just said mean that there's starting to be a recognition of that? Totally. I think the mayor has said this too. We need to streamline some of the processes. He particularly called out the env environmental review process that takes a while um, and sort of cut through the red tape to get more affordable housing built. But I will say during the de Blasio administration, he came out really strong with a few neighborhood rezonings that he 
wanted to pursue. East New York, which was our district with Councilmember Rafael Espinal, was one of the first. And we got hundreds of millions of dollars for the district. So not only the 3,000 units of affordable housing, but new roads, a new thousand seats public school with a green roof and a job center and a police athletic league. So, you know, council members should negotiate in these situations and hold the line, work with the city council and the administration to get what they want in terms of community benefits. I don't think we should sacrifice that, um, but we should definitely make it easier to build just more generally. So, Jake, I was just going to go ahead. Uh, You know, there was uh, a development up in Harlem earlier this year, uh, the 145, I think it was a 145th in Lenox. Um, it was going to be about 450 uh, regulated units. Um, and the council member up there, Kristen Richards and Jordan, um, probably I think far and away even more so than than uh, Tiffany Caban is, is the most leftist member of the city council. Uh, and she single-handedly derailed this project saying she wanted um, you know, 20% AMI, which is uh, the one of the lowest possible in, um, what is AMI? Uh, AMI is area median income. It's a, a measure of um, what the neighborhood, uh, the, the numbers in New York City are a little skewed. Um, it's, a, it's a measure of uh, how much money people in a, in a given community are making. So when you say 20%, that means someone's making one fifth of the area median salary, um, which means the, the lowest income of the low. Um, and, you know, she, she drew a line in the sand and ultimately the developer had to pull the project. Um, it's actually been a huge, huge issue for her. You know, this is a person that won an election with about um, a thousand vote margin in, in East Harlem. And she's getting primaried this year by two people on her right who said, no, 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 we need housing. Um, yes, we should push. And to Erica's point, yes, we should get the best deal. We should get a new elementary school. Um, we should get all of this funding for our community programs. Um, but she drew a line in the sand. She She won. But I think ultimately she'll lose um, because there's going to be a lot of opposition to her this year in, in the re-election uh, campaign. And I think you're going to see that across the city as well. I think the city council is going to get maybe one or two more Republican seats um, after the redistricting and um, you know maybe, maybe one or two other ticks to the right, um, even within the Democratic Party. So, Jake, let, let's move up the thruway to Albany. Um, in the next six weeks, we'll see Governor Hochul's budget address and state of the state. Um, what are the meaningful policies that you think she'll try to advance that have a shot at actually happening? I think housing development will be big. I think she's going to make a big push for that in the budget, um, both in New York City and you know in her in her native Buffalo and and some of the upstate areas. Um, this is the first upstate governor we've had in some time, um, so I think that'll actually be really interesting to see how that plays out. Um, obviously, she's going to be catering to New York City to curry favor with her newest constituents, but. Um, I think she's going to work a lot on that. And I also think they're going to take up some measure of bail reform. Um, bail reform is obviously one of uh, Mayor Adams's biggest issues. Um, a couple of years ago, the state Senate and the state assembly passed a law um, basically eliminating cash bail. Um, since then, they've actually walked it back a little bit. Um, but Mayor Adams has made it clear that one of his top priorities in Albany is um, basically reining that, that law in a little bit so that judges have a little bit more discretion to say, certain violent criminals are still ineligible for cash bail. Um, yeah, makes sense. Erica, what, what, what do you think will get done? And if you were the governor's policy director, what would you be pushing? <laughs> yeah, definitely affordable housing. I mean, we got a little snippet of what she plans to do in her Abney speech this week with the mayor. Um, so I think infrastructure, something on the environment might be big. They just passed the Environmental Bond Act um, in November, which was on our ballot. So maybe something related to climate change would be really great to see. I'm also interested, she said this week that she's supporting the staff raises for legislators, the legislator um, pay rate being increased to, I think, 130000 which is still pretty low. But I think that's a great idea to reduce corruption in the state, restrict the amount of outside income legislators are able to take. Um, so I think she'll be working closely with the legislature. It seems like she has a good relationship with them. She definitely has a good relationship with the mayor, much better than we've seen in the past um, administration. So I think we'll see a lot of collaboration um, and potentially some bigger ticket items around affordable housing, as Jake was talking about. So we're going to close out on on federal and two questions for each of you, which is, one, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is from Brooklyn. The House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries is from Brooklyn. They should have a meaningful amount of influence. Uh, The first question is if they can get 
something done for New York City, if you can give them one priority, what would it be? Uh, my answer is always the same uh, on my Christmas list from uh, the Santas and the federal government, uh, just transit funding. Um, we need the gateway project yeah. to go through. Um, I tangentially uh, congestion pricing, that, that's a state thing, but um, any, anything to do with transit, any, any dollars, nickels that they can shake out of the federal budget to make our subway systems a little bit better um, has monumental consequences um, for, for New Yorkers. There, there's always this disparity, Erica, between what New Yorkers pay in taxes to Washington and then we get what we get back in federal funding. Yeah. Do you see this as an opportunity to reduce that gap, or do you think in order to make their members all over the country happy who they have to you know, satiate, um, it just stays the way it is? Yeah, I mean, it's no secret that Brooklyn is in the House um, and the Senate, and so hopefully they will, bring it, will be bringing some of that home to New Yorkers, but I think it's important that we also as Democrats, um, you know, pay attention to the rest of the country with a really important election coming up, um, making sure that we're doing the right things, not just for New York, but the whole of the country. Sure. So I'm going to end on a political question, which is um, Kirsten Gillibrand, one of our two U.S. senators, her term is up uh, next year. There's some scuttlebutt that she might choose not to run for re-election. If that happens, who do you think are the prime contenders for that seat? So, uh, Jake, I'll start with you. Uh, Richie Torres. Uh, he, he has been he has he has been a star from from the day he stepped foot in the city council. Um, he's been he's done so much in Congress, made uh, an incredible amount of friends. Um, Richie Torres of the Bronx. Um, right. So all right, look, I, we're all we're yeah, we're all big Richie folks. We're all smiling because we're all close with Richie personally. Like we're in the bag for Richie. So give me one or two more people that are not Richie. But Erica, you can jump into a few. Is it weird to say Scott Stringer? Like, I just feel like he needs a job. He really likes running for office. Like, feels like he needs to be in government all the time. I, I mean, it's ironic that he tried to run for state senate and wasn't able to succeed there, and then we'll try U.S. Senate. But sure, I mean, there's nothing. He'll collect the signatures. He needs to get on the ballot. Go, going back to Hochul's upstate roots, uh, maybe May Mayor Byron Brown of Buffalo or uh, Mark Polencars, uh, the Erie County Executive. Um, you know, historic. I, I recall this being one of um, Governor Cuomo's uh, decision. Yeah, or no, sorry, it was Patterson, actually. Governor Patterson um, chose uh, Kirsten Gillibrand because she was from upstate, and we already had an, a downstate senator. Um, so I, I think maybe someone from upstate might be able to make a case for, for an upstate senator. Final, final question. Does Andrew Cuomo run for Senate in 2024? <laughs> sure, yeah. I, I think he's he's clearly uh, – he has, he has not shied away from the limelight recently. Um yeah, he might run. I mean, he's got nothing to lose, right? Yep. And he's got the money. And he's got the money. All right. Well, I'm going to hold you guys accountable uh, for your predictions, but thanks both for joining us. Thanks, Brad. Thank you. All right. Our next guest is Cristobal Alex. Uh, as listeners may remember, Cristobal was on pretty recently, maybe like five weeks ago. And I'll tell you, Cristobal, you were on right before Election Day. You were bullish on the Democrats. And guess what? You were right. And you were the only one, not just on our <laughs> podcast, but in the whole country who actually called it right. So congratulations. And uh, I think now the stakes are very high for your 2023 predictions because you seem to be the only one with a crystal ball. Well, uh, I got lucky. I got lucky, Bradley. Um, and uh, no, no crazy predictions today, but I'm, I'm glad uh, that we're back on. And, and, and thanks for having me. And Thanks for letting me uh, uh, try this again. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right. So, as I think listeners who pay attention to our podcast know, Cristobal joined us in May uh, from the Biden administration. He was the deputy cabinet secretary in the White House. So let's start with a little inside baseball and then work our way out. Um, regardless of what happens in the 2024 election, we're at that halfway point of the first term. That tends to be a place where people leave, especially people who work on the campaign and they're really exhausted. Um, transition, chief of staff, just tell me how you think the White House and the cabinet changes over the next six months. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think what we're going to see is is more of the same, which is going to be boring. And that's a good thing, right? Um, we hired Joe Biden as our president because we were done with the craziness and we wanted stability and we wanted competence. And I think that's what we're going to continue to see going into the next couple of years. Um, I do think... Um, I love Ron Klain. I think he's uh, probably one of the best chiefs of staff ever. Uh, but I do think the job is so demanding and so hard 
and he's got family uh, that he may want to go. So I would expect to see a shift there, uh, especially leaving on a high note. Uh, I know folks, uh, um, you know, think maybe that's the, the best way to do it. And then on the cabinet side, you know, that has been super stable. Handicap for me, who replaces Clay? I know this is super <laughs> inside baseball, but. Um, well, we're going to get me in trouble here. Uh, my first choice is Clay Tusk. Um, but I sure. do think there's a couple of great people uh, in the White House right now who could be incredible, right? People that he trusts, like a Bruce Reed, people like a Steve Rochetti. But of course, Anita Dunn is there, and she is really uh, uniquely suited on the comm side, on the policy side, on the rapid response side, and knows how to deal with uh, a very complicated environment like she did on the campaign. So I think right there, you've got three great, yeah. great folks. And- Anita is my friend, so I'm biased, but I think she's also one of those people that she's calm. Everybody yeah. respects her. She has a lot of wisdom, a lot of expertise. You know, I, I don't know Bruce or Steve nearly as well, but I think Anita would be a, a great choice. Um, so you were heavily involved in picking the first set of cabinet members. Um, how many do you think are going to go and which ones and, and who do you think comes in? Yeah, you know, that's um, that's a harder one. So. I think you're going to see maybe, I'm guessing, something like four or five departures, which is extremely low. Um, when you think about the entire cabinet, I mean, you know, you've got 15 executive officers, essentially, you know, 25 total because you cloud you, you, you include the chief of staff um, <clears throat> and the vice president in the cabinet. So I think you're going to see some moves there, maybe on Treasury. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, I also As think Treasury, that, uh, would, would Gensler be the likely replacement? You know, I'm going to guess, and this is, it's funny that we're doing this on a podcast because this is the kind of conversation I would love to have with you at a bar. <laughs> so everyone's going to hear no, this. I, I think your friend Gina Raimondo might uh, come over there. You know, yeah, I think like that's scenario. We open up commerce and I think they've got incredible people at commerce and outside that could, that could also do a great job over there. I love, you know, Don Graves and people like that. They got a lot of really smart people. So I yeah. think you'll see some movement there. Right. And um, you know no, what's I, ironic is, to me at least, Gensler's entire path to being secretary was based on being anti-crypto and winning support from Elizabeth Warren, who clearly has a lot of influence with the administration. And in a weird way, crypto has collapsed so thoroughly because of FTX that I don't know there's even as good of an issue for him anymore as he thought it was going to be. That's an interesting point. Yeah. Um and by the way, yeah, as, we, as we're recording this, you know, the news broke earlier, I guess last night about the arrest, um, uh, uh, the FTX, yeah, uh, yeah. total, total craziness. Um, and so, you know, I think I think you may be right there. All right. So then let's go around uh, state, defense, AG, all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, sorry. One other prediction on the executive here. I, I, I should have mentioned, yeah. I do think you're going to see Biden's approval numbers go up. Um, they're already decent, um, but I do think particularly as the presidential campaign becomes more defined and other people start entering, you know, as Biden has always said, like, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. Once we see the alternative, I think his polling will increase pretty dramatically. I mean, I don't know what it's going to get up to, but, you know, close to 50%, I would guess. Which Look, I think we discussed in the last podcast, 40 is sort of the new normal, right? So 50 is like... And 60, the old 50 is the new 60 or 60 is the new 50. Yeah. New 60, all right. I think I'm yeah, maybe I need to hedge my bets a little here. I'll say, I'll say 47, 47. All right. So let, let's flip over to Congress now. And Lisa was just on a couple of minutes ago. Um, and she, you know, I think her prediction that McCarthy probably does become speaker, but she certainly saw a world where that maybe that doesn't happen. How are you handicapping this? I think so. I think that's what happens. Um, and um, I also think, you know, given even though the voters rejected for the most part this kind of absurd MAGA, you know, conspiracy theorist, election deniers, and really kind of wanted to lean into the progress we had been making, I think, um, uh, as a country, we're going to not have that anymore because suddenly, you know, the Republicans are going to want to spend all their time dealing with Hunter Biden. Um, you're going to see a lot of oversight, which goes back to your cabinet question. There's going to be so much oversight and hearings and, quite frankly, BS thrown at the admin that I think that'll cause some some, some folks to think twice about whether they want to stay. But um, but I do think you're not going to see a lot of progress coming out of Congress and at least the House. And so that'll 
force the Senate to really kind of kick into overdrive. And I think there's a little ability to do that now, including around nominations, ambassadorships, judges. They could do confirmations. Is there any topic, any issue where you think a Republican House and a Democratic Senate and White House could come together on and pass meaningful legislation? Yeah, you know, (coughs) pardon me. I do think, um, you know, there are going to be a couple of areas uh, issues around uh, easing inflationary pressure pressures. So mm-hmm. I think I think on some of the you know kitchen table stuff there may be some progress. I don't see on any of the more you know third rail type issues. I think we're not going to get any more movement on gun safety legislation. I think you know I I I think with the lame duck here and a few things that might get out of the door, that'll probably foreclose much else happening. Um, Tech regulation. You think anything there could happen? Like the, some of the antitrust stuff has bipartisan support. Yeah, I think you're right there. I do think some tech, some antitrust. That's a very good point. Uh, maybe, um, you know, maybe a little bit around. I know you care a lot about universal school meals and um, what's one of your big philanthropy yeah. projects. I'm hoping there might be a chance there on some stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah, my, my hope, and I don't know how realistic it is, but my fantasy is. McCarthy and Schumer have a deal on something big. McCarthy needs five Democratic votes, 10 Democratic votes. Each of those members has a lot of leverage and one or multiple of them insist on universal school meals funding. Although that was my exact strategy with the 50th Democratic vote in the Senate. And I turned out to be completely wrong and, and failed entirely, which is why when Kirsten Sinema left the Democratic Party, and I was asked if I was going to support her. I, said, I certainly support independence, but she had the chance to do the right thing and help kids, and she chose not to do so. And so, no, I don't support her at all. Um, it's hard to be. Uh, it's hard to be against feeding kids. I mean, you gotta, you gotta have a big yeah, problem. If you're against it. People just choose not to act on it. Um, and I think part of our role in that ecosystem is, is to hold people accountable because the hunger groups are yeah. usually too nice to do that. Um, okay, so we're heading into a presidential election. Uh, when does Biden officially announce his candidacy? I'm going to guess it's in the first quarter. I don't think it's going to be as long as uh, some folks are putting it. I wouldn't be surprised if you saw this thing at the end of January. Um, obviously, there's a lot of uh, moving pieces. And the good news, I think, for the Biden folks is while they're figuring this piece out, they've already got a juggernaut in the Democratic National Committee. It's one of the stronger committees ever. I think they got great staff. You know, they raised record sums of money. And uh, uh, unlike the Obama reelect, a lot of the work is going to live there anyway. So I do think things are starting to move into more of an autopilot in terms of the planning. And uh, I'm, I'm guessing late January. And Kamala Harris definitely stays on the ticket. Yes. Yes, definitely. What if Biden got another Supreme Court opening? Is she, I mean, it seems to me that, that arguably she'd be a very, very good justice. And at the same time, if she's not seen as a successful VP, it kind of lets them clear the slate there. Do you see any world where that could happen? No, I don't. I mean, I just saw uh, the vice president and second gentleman last night, um, and they were in a room full of supporters at their residence. And I just think the energy in the room and um, the competence that her team has really taken on, I mean, Really, if you look at the news clips from a year ago, I mean, she was in a tough spot um, and had some, you know, challenges in that in that office. And I think they've turned the ship around, and she is showing herself as a very uh, strong leader. Um, they've given her some of the toughest assignments, and she's delivering. And I think, you know, I, I don't think she goes anywhere, and 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 I, I don't think she should. Okay, so you helped run the Biden campaign in 2020. Uh, if you could pick your opponent for 2024, who would you choose? Trump. (laughs) Definitely Trump. Tell me why. Because he is a fundamentally flawed candidate that Joe Biden has already beaten. Um, He's got a lot hanging over him, uh, is is damaged. um, And I think that even though he's got a core base of support, he can't get beyond his own base, which is a little bit of what we saw in the midterm. So um, he would be my choice for an opposition who scares you the most? Uh, DeSantis. Um, so if let's assume that the, the field is DeSantis, Trump, and then, I don't know, some combination of Youngkin, Pence, Pompeo, Haley, whatever it is. But the two heavyweights will be DeSantis and Trump. If DeSantis does win the nomination, 
and Lisa and I talked about this a few minutes, or maybe Jocelyn and I talked about this a few minutes ago as well. Um, do you see a world where Trump either mounts his own third party bid or refuses to support DeSantis because he'll claim the election was stolen from him? And if so, what's the electoral impact of that? That's a great point. Um, I hadn't thought of that, but I do. He has a hard time admitting defeat. Um, he lives in this alternative universe. <laughs> a nice way to um, put it. <laughs> he also, you know, honestly, like, I wouldn't be surprised if he's under indictment at that point, right? So that, that may change his calculus a little bit. But um, if he were to run as a third party, he would definitely eat into the Republican ticket more so than the Democratic. Yeah, it's interesting. So I, I, I think, as you know, I've spent a, not a lot, but a little bit of time advising the forward party on kind of how they could move forward simply because I just generally believe in reform politics, independent politics. And the thesis behind the reform party was sort of the inverse, which is if Trump's the nominee, they could arguably put up someone else who would take votes away from Trump. But ironically, maybe the best contribution they could make to society would be to give Trump their line and say, so if they're, they're trying to get on the ballot in all 50 states, here you go, man. Um, and this is the best way to actually split the party and, and reelect Biden. I'll, I'll bring it up. I think I have a call with them this week or next week. I'll bring it up. I suspect they're not going to like that idea, but I'll, I'll, I'll float hey, it listen, in. Hey, listen, that is the, the evil genius uh, of Bradley Tusk. When you, I think that's a brilliant idea. If you can get them to do it, that'd be amazing. Uh, we'll take a shot. All right. One, give, give me like kind of one totally out of the box thing that you think happens in 2023 that people aren't thinking about. Man. So this is the problem is I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm having a hard time thinking of something completely out of the box because I'm such a traditional thinker, but um, that's not true, but okay. I'm going to say, I'm going to say, and maybe it's, it's not a, a huge surprise, but I do think we'll see a person of color running the campaign probably a woman of color, which will be historic in, 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 in many ways. So yeah, do you, you, you have a contender for who that might be? <laughs> I do, but I cannot, this is one I cannot say anything about. Okay, no problem. I, I'm going to ask you, I'll ask you off the air later. Beautiful. Cool. All right, Cristobal, thank you for joining us. See you, hermano. Bye-bye. Okay, our next guest is my friend and colleague, Lisa Quigley. Just give the listeners a little background. Lisa's been on, I think, a couple of times at this point. But Lisa runs Solving Hunger. That's the part of Tusk Philanthropies that funds and runs legislation in different states to pass uh, anti-hunger bills like universal school meals, breakfast after the bell, snack for seniors, things like that. Also, because I'm going to also ask about politics a little more broadly, Lisa spent several decades uh, in the House, at, mainly as chief of staff to Congressman uh, Jim Cooper out of Tennessee. And so she really knows the, the DC world incredibly well and now the hunger world incredibly well too. So Lisa, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. So let, let's start with hunger and then we'll work our way out. Um, if, if you're an American right now and you say, I, I know there are probably people in this country who are hungry, but I really have no sense of how many or what's going on. What's the, what's the baseline that people should understand? Well, I think that it, when you look at children, uh, because let's start there, is if you are in a household of a family of four that makes $51,400 a year or less, which is not very much, the children in that household do not are not eligible for school meals, for free or reduced price meals. And this is not indexed to inflation. This is not in any way sort of um, taking into effect uh, very high income areas. And so it's a little bit like the Medicaid expansion debate from 10 years ago that's still going on in some states is that you have a lot of people who are poor and who are being covered. And then you have a lot of people who can afford healthcare or food to eat. And there's a whole bunch of people in the middle who are really struggling and are not poor enough to be able to get the help from the government. So, so right now, ballpark, how many adults and kids in this country don't know where their next meal is coming from, or at least can't be certain about it? Millions. Millions. And when it comes to children, if you think about the children that do qualify for, for, for free and reduced price meals, imagine about 30% or 40%, somewhere between the two of those that aren't getting free or reduced meals, need them. They are going home to places where the pantry is bare. And parents are working hard to keep the lights on. Parents are 
working hard to keep a roof over their child's head. There is not enough food in the household. So 2022, in my view, was a year of some progress on this issue at the state level, but also regression at the federal level. Um, what happened in 2022? And then let's lead into uh, what are we working on specifically in this regard in 2023? Well, to answer that, let me just take you back uh, quickly three years. Three years ago, children were being fed in school only those who were eligible for free and reduced price meals. But there were a lot of kids who really needed to be fed in school. And then the pandemic hit. And when the pandemic hit, the federal government decided in its wisdom to go ahead and just feed all the K through 12 children. No poverty tests, none of these income barriers. Let's just figure out how to feed all the children. There were supply chain issues. It was much better to go ahead and just try to feed everybody. And that was an incredible anti-poverty tool for a two-year period. And in 2022, that stopped. The federal government at this point decided we're, it's done, it's over, we don't need to do this anymore. But in the meantime, some of the states had looked at this and said, you know, actually, this was really, really important. And if the federal government is going to keep doing it, we're going to start doing it. And so California, Maine, and last month, Colorado, via referendum, have decided to feed all K-12 through children as part of the educational experience forever. Other states, I like to say they're kind of dating the idea of universal school meals, not quite married to it yet. But those states are Vermont, which we helped, Nevada, which we helped, Massachusetts, where we were involved in a hunger campaign that kind of created the environment for getting universal school meals in Massachusetts. And in Pennsylvania, they're doing breakfast for the next year. Now, these will come down at the end of the school year unless they decide to re-up. And so if you look at trends, three years ago, nobody was doing this. Today, you have seven states that are in it forever or are thinking about it. And what we want to do is try to help them make that leap. So we're involved in four states this next year, all of which are trying to get universal school meals. So we don't have to have these debates about who's poor enough to be fed in school. Let's just feed all the kids. What states are we doing? We are doing Vermont. We're going back to Vermont. We did one year in Vermont, but we're going to try to make it permanent. We're doing North Carolina, which is very exciting because they have a great um, supporter in um, Blue Cross Blue Shield Foundation of North Carolina who's given $3.5 million to the effort. So that really helps complement what we're going to do and what the organizations there are going to do. We're also in Connecticut and in New York. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I love that we're doing North Carolina because, you know, last year we did Kentucky. And I think it, it, to a person who wasn't thinking about it much, the answer would have been, yeah, you're not going to succeed. It's literally the home of Mitch McConnell. He wouldn't allow university school meals to continue on a federal level. And yet we did, which is why I totally agreed with you and you wanted to add another red state. And I think the fact that you come from a red state helps a lot. But overall, I mean, are we looking at a world where we have ultimately 25 states with universal school meals and 25 states without them? Or, or how do we make this thing truly universal? Well, if you look what's happened with Medicaid expansion, we still have 11 holdout states. They will not take the federal money to, to make sure that people are covered. And so I think you're always going to have those states that are holding out. But this is a trend. And even if you look at the results of the Colorado election, where Governor Polis won pretty big this, this last time, he also lost some counties, right? And of the counties that he lost, universal school meals still won. And this was by referendum. So the people in the states understand that this isn't actually a partisan issue. This is about making sure that when kids show up to school, ready to learn, that they're actually ready to learn because they have food in their bellies. So I actually think that this is going to become part of the educational experience. Other states are going to look at the state next door and see that they're doing it. And, you know, governors are all focused on how do we keep young families in our states because that's the engine for economic growth. And I think this is just kind of a no-brainer. It's actually a funny thing about universal school meals is there's not much opposition to it. I mean, there's always a price tag for everything, and that might be an, op uh, an opposing view. But there's not sort of this um, 
philosophical debate about universal school meals. Um, it's not, you know, partisan. Um, and so because of that, there are also aren't clear champions. So we just kind of have to keep working it and making the arguments that this is really good for families. It protects them against inflation. And it definitely makes sure that when children go to school, they're going to be in a position to take advantage of what we're providing them in a free public education. So we've got two states that are doing this permanently, thank God, Maine and California, which we also worked on those bills, um, four states that are doing it at least for some period of time, Vermont, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania for breakfast, and Nevada. Um, is there a tipping point where, let's say that, I don't know, it's four years from now, and now we have half helped pass universal school meals on a permanent basis in 12 states. Is there something where all of a sudden most of them just fall in line after that, or do you think it's just going to be a battle every single time? Uh, I, I think that you're going to see um, what, what I notice is the attraction that governors, that executives tend to have to what the state next door is doing, right? Like they tend to sort of look at that cluster of states yeah. where there is a lot of commonality between the people they represent. And they're looking next door and seeing, huh, that's something that you're doing there. And now we can see some results that are really tangible. And I think it's going to be undeniable. And they're going to decide that this is something we have to do too in order to keep people in our state and contributing to our economy. So you spent an incredibly long time on the Hill. You're an expert in federal politics. We're going to talk about Congress in a second. But have now spent the last couple of years really working mainly in, in state government. Um, what's the difference? How do you, what, what have you kind of learned uh, about the distinction between the two now that you've done both? Much less partisan in state government. Um, you can have conversations with people on both sides of the aisle, and they're not so tribal. And I know that that's not always the case, and I sure that we all have examples of things that are happening in their states that seem quite partisan, but everything in Washington is partisan. I mean, you can't have any issue where you're not trying to figure out, well, my team is on one side, and so therefore I will be on that team. In state government, it seems that there's actually an opportunity to have conversations about things that impact people that they run into and see every single day. It's not the case necessarily in Congress. So you can get shit done. Yep. Yeah. All right. So Congress, um, Republicans took the House by not by much. Uh, doesn't seem like McCarthy's got a cakewalk to the speakership. Um, so, you know, you're a pretty keen observer of the stuff. How do you think that plays out? Well, I actually worked for somebody that didn't vote for Nancy Pelosi numerous times when she was um, slated for speaker. And so I have some background in sort of the game behind um, the speaker's race. And yeah. I think that it's still unlikely that McCarthy will not be able to find his way to 50% plus one. But it's actually a really interesting experiment, a thought experiment, about how he's going to get there. So he has 222 votes right now in the Republican caucus. But that doesn't mean that all those votes are for him. In fact, the Republican caucus <clears throat> conference, pardon me, met three weeks ago to elect their leaders. <clears throat> and on the Republican side, he lost 31 of his members internally in an internal caucus vote for who should be speaker. And those are the people furthest on the right or just a total mix of people? Who knows? It was secret ballot. Oh, right. Ballot. It's anonymous. We don't know. It right. was secret ballot. Yeah. So his job between then and now has been trying to suss out who those 31 are. Now, some are raising their hands very loudly and saying, I will never vote for Kevin McCarthy. And we see them in the news. It's Biggs of Arizona. It's Gates of Florida. It's Rosendale of Montana. Uh, and good of Virginia. But there's others behind the scenes that are saying they're not sure that they're voting for him. And he can only lose, theoretically, he can only lose four if all 222 are present and voting for an actual person. And this is actually where it gets interesting, because if you don't show up or if you vote present then your vote doesn't count towards the total. If you also show up and vote for a person that is not Kevin McCarthy, and it could be any American, by the way. My former boss repeatedly voted for Colin Powell for speaker. The speaker doesn't have to even be a member of the US House. And if you vote for a person, then that vote does count against the total. So if you're out or you vote present, 
you're only worth half a vote. So it's a matter of pairing the, the members that might agree to not come that day. They might agree to vote present. And for goodness sakes, don't vote for another person. And it's and so then it's 50% plus one of the total number of people yeah. present and voting that day for a person. And so we don't actually even know the exact number that he's going to need at this point in order to win for the speakership. So when, when your old boss was in the minority, um, given that he wasn't going to support, you know, the Pelosi establishment anyway, why not cut a deal with whoever the Republican candidate for speaker was to become the chairman of a committee or gain some major benefits? Like, why shouldn't a handful of enterprising Democrats not join forces with McCarthy, put him in the speakership and really benefit from it? So I think it's really hard to, it's one thing to say, I'm not going to vote for the leader of my party. It's another thing to go outside and vote for somebody who's considered a bipartisan sort of American hero, you know, not only a hero kind of in the political space and the diplomatic space, but in the military space, yeah. which was his choice of Colin Powell. Right. It's very, very difficult. It's sort of a, um, it's a gating question. Like, are you a Democrat? And so will you vote for the Democratic leader? Are you a Republican? And will you vote for the Republican leader? And so it's very um, unlikely to see that you would make a deal except if you had to make a deal. And so what may happen with Kevin McCarthy and the Republican conference as they contemplate how to get these votes on the floor. And remember, this is not about going and voting with your voting card like you do with every other vote in the House. It's actually quite dramatic. They call the names and then the members say out loud who they're for. And so it's also very difficult for somebody who's um, a critic of McCarthy and has been an out, uh, outspoken critic to then suddenly stand and say his name. So the interesting um, problem will be is that the detractors only have to block him. They do not have to have an alternative. All they have to do is see that he does not have the number of votes to get, and then they force a conversation on who should be speaker. And the most interesting name that's been floated in the last several days is Liz Cheney. Right. She's not going to be a member of the House, right? But she does know how the House functions. My goodness. But, but could all the Democrats Republicans are... ever vote? I mean, it would be all the Democrats yes. and so a couple of Republicans. Does she have right. any Republican votes? Not publicly. But if you are forced to come up with an alternative because you cannot, because McCarthy cannot get the votes that he needs, and his number two, Scalise, perhaps he can't get the votes that he needs. And if you are thinking about oh my gosh, we might need to make a deal on the other side. Well, then good luck finding those Democrats that are going to sort of join your side to support one of these uh, Republicans. But hey, if the House works its will at some point and you have all the Democrats and a few Republicans supporting a Republican because she is a Republican, that's something that I is I think is quite interesting and not impossible. But given that she lost her primary decisively, which she knew was going to happen, but but still that yeah. happened, um, why would that not happen to any Republican that votes for her for speaker in the next election? You know, I think um, it's the Trump luster, right? Like Trump went after all the people that opposed him and all of his people went, okay, we're going to go ahead and impose them. I'm not sure if a, a rank-and-file member, somebody who's from, like, a little more of a moderate district, like less of a crazy place, votes for Liz Cheney, if that is going to inspire Trump uh, supporters to then go after that member, like, it's just sort of another degree of separation. It could happen, but uh, if you're thinking about a house without a speaker without a leader, so you absolutely cannot move forward on any of the business of the country. It's extremely bad for us domestically. It's also reputational damage for us internationally. You have got to get a speaker. And it's, you know, fan, you know, uh, fantastical thinking about bringing someone in from the outside who really doesn't even know the house. You know, wow, you actually have somebody here who knows the house, who has a national platform, and who has the ability to bring both Democrats and some Republicans on her side to be the leader of the institution. And I mean, it's amazing to think about 
what kind of speaker she might even be. There might be a power sharing agreement, right? Because Democrats are the ones that got her the votes. Yeah. Now, I, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think that this is likely to happen, but it's actually um, an interesting thought experiment because we could round the corner into 2023 and be watching as McCarthy is unable to get the votes that he needs to yeah. become speaker. Well, my, my choice would be someone that I suspect you either know or have met a bunch of times, uh, not a member of the House, but I think a national treasurer is Dolly Parton. Um, <laughs> well, how that. could I object to that as a Tennessean? You must know her. I'm for uh, Dolly. I'm yeah. for Dolly. So, all right, how do people learn more about our hunger work and how can they help us? Solvinghunger.org. Uh, that's our website. Learn about our work there. Um, if you live in Connecticut, Vermont, North Carolina, or New York, please join us in passing universal school meals in your state this year. There's plenty of work to do, and we have a way to slot you in. Great. Please, quickly, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.